0: Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. And what I found in a house where people live is that they make messes. And what's true about teenagers is they often look for the path of least resistance. That's how I understand it. So like if they leave their shoes out, if the breakfast cereal bowl is left out, they will always pick the easiest path and that is generally to not pick up after themselves and that drives me absolutely crazy. So my approach is usually this. My approach is that I will have power over them I pay for the Xbox, I pay for your cell phone, you will pick up your shoes, I am bigger than you, I am stronger than you, and to quote Cliff uh, Cliff Huxtable, I brought you in this world and I can take you out, pick up your stuff, is a power over kind of thing. And you know what, there's probably something good in there that they realize that their actions have consequences, that there is authority, but usually it comes with a cost. And that cost is peace in the home, and broken relationships. But my wife, see, she has cracked the code. She does something that is so powerful that it changes like just the tone of the room. And right now you're thinking, I know what it is. She doesn't have, it's like she gives the look, right? If you're a mom, you know the look. If you're married to any, like a woman, it's a woman, you have to know the look. They can just kind of like cross their arms and give you the look and just bend you to their will and submission. The problem is this, is like my kids have a look too. Right, and they'll just roll their eyes at that, so that doesn't, that's not what I'm talking about here. It's not the look. Now, Jennifer, what she does is not a force of the will. It's something actually that motivates our children in a good kind of way. Here's what, here's what she does. When my children have left their shoes out, when they haven't cleaned up after they came back from soccer practice, when you know, they didn't put their stuff away, when when I've been like powering over them and they say, "Well, fine, I'm going to show you the force of my will, Dad," and now there's like you know this clash happening because I have one particularly strong-willed child. Uh, I won't say what name her what, what what's her name. She's um, really strong-willed, right? And it becomes like this clash. When that starts happening, here's what my wife does that is just just so brilliant. She she doesn't have a power over posture. She she adopts a power under posture. A power under posture. What does that mean? Well, she asks a simple question that you've heard from every customer service worker you've ever worked with. She walks into the middle of these power over reverberation matches and she asks this one simple question, what can I do for you? How can I help? How can I leverage my cool-headedness, my resources, my composure to help make this place better, to help maintain stronger relationships? And many times without being asked, this is what she does that's so brilliant, she says, I'll take care of your shoes for you. And she goes and she picks up the shoes, she takes care of the cereal bowl, and here's what that does. My kids... It works with my kids. You'll have to evaluate if it would work work with yours. My kids look at that and go, oh, that's not right. That mom should have to do that. And they jump right into action. And here's what I know. Having power under, it does not mean that you're a pushover. It doesn't mean that you're going to let people, you know, just like, Dominate over you. On the contrary, having power under has such a confidence of self and identity that that you you know, look, I don't have to prove myself. I'm just going to ask, what can I do to help? You rise above the power over culture. The power over culture says, "This, I'm an authority. I'm bigger than you." I can make you miserable. I have power and influence. You bend your will to mine. But the power under approach says, listen, I I care more about being an example about how we get along with one another. So I'm gonna die to self here. I don't need to prove myself. I'm gonna demonstrate what it means to be a servant. And can I be honest with you? When she does that, it drives me nuts. (laughs) I'm just like, no, because here's what I'm fundamentally wanting them to do. I'm fundamentally, I, I care that they understand authority and responsibility. Is that important? Probably. But a power under posture doesn't ask that question. They ask this question. They, 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 want, they want, a power under says this. They say, not will they understand and pick up after themselves, but they ask this question what if true humility and servant leadership is never modeled in this situation? What if all I do is train my kids to bear down harder and to put up more of a fight? That's what power underdoes. They care that, that there's a modeling of selflessness and servitude. It it turns out that the power over model is really the mode of the world. That's how we operate. And for many of us, when we're called into relationships, and when we think about, do I model a power under kind of mode of operating? I I don't know about you, but I look at that and I say, I don't know that I'm so great at that. And if you feel that way, you're in great company because I feel that way. But also, the, the, the disciples of Jesus had the very same challenges And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Jesus' teaching as he walked alongside his disciples and see how he just kind of unfolds this idea of what it means to be a power under leader in your homes, in your marriages, in your workplaces, in your neighborhood. The series that we're in is called Stops Along the Way as Jesus navigated his ministry with his disciples, the way he trained them was usually not through a classroom setup. It was usually not with a weekend you know, seminar. It was they would travel through life and much like when you're on a trip with your family in the summertime and you say, hey, this is something you need to know about how God works and how life works. Isn't this cool? And you have these stops along the way and sometimes that's the richness there that occurs. So just as the disciples learned from Jesus and leaned in, so do we. I want to show just this pattern that emerges in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and I'm gonna kind of Bible nerd here with you for a little bit. We have orange Bibles underneath your seats. If you don't have one, you can keep it. It's our gift to you. Uh, we've got plenty. We brought them to give to people, so you can use that. I'm gonna go quickly through a couple different spots, but then we're gonna just kind of zoom in on one particular passage here. We're gonna be in Mark, and I wanna show you some stuff here. In Mark chapter, um, we in 8, verse 27, Here's what happens. Disciples are following after Jesus, they're seeing him do great miracles and Jesus stops his disciples and he asks them this question. He says, what is, what, how do people understand me? Uh, who do people say that I am? The disciples responded, well some people would say that you're a great prophet, some would say that you're a great teacher and Jesus then stops and says, okay, well who do you understand me to be? And Peter, impetuous Peter, he gets it wrong sometimes, and we'll see how, but in this case, he says, I believe that you're the Christ. Now, the word Christ, when you hear that word Christ, it's a Greek word. It's the Greek word for the Messiah, which is a Hebrew word. So, I believe that you are the Messiah, the promised one of God. The Messiah in the Old Testament, see, they didn't know that the Messiah was going to be Jesus they didn't know it was going to be the son of God they just knew that it was going to be a great person that would show up and make all things right that it would be the servant of God that would take abuses that were occurring would take the sin in the world would deal with the crud that we live with that's what these people were looking for and Peter rightly says you are that person that's what Peter tells them now and this is what happens then Jesus Verse 31 of chapter eight, he he begins to teach them that the son of man, and that's his way of saying, I'm God, I'm divine, that's me, the son of man, I have to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again, he spoke plainly about this. And I just imagine these disciples who are like regular fishermen. Jesus fills their boat. It's like, man, this is amazing. He looked at me and pointed at me and said, you come follow me. And I'm like, this is awesome. I get to hang out with a celebrity and he healed my mother-in-law and he gave me all this fish. This is amazing. He's going to make all things right. This is great. This is my meal ticket. This guy is going to be my path to a better future. I'm following after him. Things are looking up. And then Jesus says this. I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die and I'm gonna come back from the dead in three days. This is how Peter reacts. <laughs> Peter takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Hey, Jesus, you've got this wrong. You're reading from the wrong script. You're mistaken. Oh my goodness, Peter. Now that's, that's by the way, the Gospel of Mark is Peter's account through a, a scribe, a friend that wrote it down, and that, that friend's name is Mark. This is actually Peter's account. That's why I don't think this is made up. Because if you're Peter telling the story and you're trying to make it up to make yourself look good, you don't include that. This is what Jesus then looks at his disciple like he's pointing a finger at him. him. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> How would you like to have Jesus call you Satan? He says, you have in your heart the things of man and not the things of God. You, you, you're thinking I'm gonna be your meal ticket, but God's got something else he's doing here and you're missing it. And then, and then he calls the crowd alongside his disciples and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. They must deny themselves. When everyone else wants to say, How do I get a foot up? When everyone else says, This is about me and my own identity and this is who I want to be, I'm going to realize myself. He says, You deny yourselves. You take up your cross. Listen, these were people who knew what a cross was, it wasn't a symbol they would leave Jerusalem and there would be five or ten people just finishing up the crucifixion and they knew what a crucifixion smelled like and they saw the servants clean the blood up. They were there. They understood what that meant. Anyone who's going to be my disciple, Peter would lean in and say, yes, Jesus, you're going to tell me anyone who's going to be my disciple is going to be a person of influence and greatness and you are going to have a reverberation from now on because people are going to say how great you are. Listen, Jesus says, no, no, no. You've got to understand, it comes when you deny yourself. You take up your cross, and then this is the thing. And follow me. And follow me. It's so powerful. Don't sprinkle some Jesus on. Don't, don't be about a, 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 like a subculture. You know, I'm going to slap a WGTS on the back of my really nice car and just Jesus make my life wonderful. And No, no, no. If you're going to be my disciple, and that's what a Christian is, is someone who says, I'm following after Jesus, it means that the things that Jesus does, we do. And the people that Jesus loves, we love. If you're going to be my disciple, here's what it means. You're going to follow after me. And then this is amazing. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is what some scholars call the upside-down kingdom of God. It's upside-down. You want to save your life? You give it away. When you give it away, you actually save it. The more you give, the more you save. This is the upside-down kingdom of God. And then here's what Jesus does, okay? He he tells them this. Now, this, this... This idea, the upside-down kingdom of God, it is completely counterintuitive, isn't it? Like everything inside of us says, it's, you know, to quote Toby Keith, it's all about me, it's all about my, it's all about number one, oh my, me, my. What I think, what I laugh, what I, I don't remember the rest of the lyrics. April, you probably know them all. I don't know them all. (laughs) I like talking about you usually, but occasionally I want to talk about me, right? Like this is counterintuitive for us. In our marriages, as a parent, this is counterintuitive. I paid the bills. I'm sitting in the nice seat. It's counterintuitive and it's countercultural. In our culture, we value the exploration and realization of self above everything else. You want to re identify another way? That's fine because your goal is to realize yourself. If you don't believe me, watch any Disney or Pixar films. It's all about expressing and realizing yourself. That's just the way that our culture operates. Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're gonna be my disciple, you deny yourself. And here's what happens, right? We're moving forward here. This is 9.30. He says, um, he says this. He says, they left that place. They went through Galilee. He says to them, again, the Son of Man is gonna be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise, he says it a second time, but they didn't understand what he was saying. And then he tells them, anyone who wants to be first must be last and must be the servant of all. Jesus says it two times, and now we're gonna zoom in on the third time that he says it. Turn in your Bibles to page nine, uh, 691 in these orange Bibles or to Mark chapter 10, Verse 32. And this is what happens. Jesus told them, hey, this is what's my future. My future involves me suffering and me dying. We're going to Jerusalem. So now, guess what? They're heading to Jerusalem. They're on their way with Jesus leading the way. It's like, hey, I've got an appointment to make. I'm excited for what's coming up. That's, that's pretty mind-boggling. The disciples were astonished by this. <laughs> well, those who followed were afraid. Maybe they're remembering what Jesus said. And he took the 12 aside and told them what was about to happen to them a third time we're going to go to jerusalem he said and me the son of man will be delivered over he fills in the gaps a little bit over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law they will condemn him to death they will hand him over to the gentiles who will kill him or excuse me who will mock him and spit on him flog him and kill him and 3 days later he will rise three times he tells them what his future entails three times He says, this is what's coming in front of me. And so it's so amazing then what happens next. It's even worse than what Peter did before. Then James and John and other places, they're known as the sons of thunder, (laughs) which is pretty appropriate. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask hold on, it's like, if someone asks you that question, you need to ask some more questions before you just answer and say yes, okay? And that's what Jesus did, okay? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? How, how can I help, <laughs> is Jesus' posture. What can I do for you? It's an important question to think about that. If you had the Son of God in front of you and you could ask him one question, what would you ask him? This is what these disciples asked him. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, there's going to be a seat of honor. There's going to be an elevated position. I want that. I want that, he would say. Now, Jesus replied, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink from or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now when he says that he's using language from the Old Testament, um, to, to share a cup is to kind of share life, is to share the blessings as well as the hard times. And so when he talks about drinking the cup and being baptized, he's saying, are you going to share in the sufferings that I am going to experience? He would say I'm establishing a different kind of kingdom because I'm a different kind of king and you can't follow me unless you do the things that I do and that means that you're gonna act the way that I act and it means that you're gonna have the same kind of desire and rigor to follow the heart and the mind of God who's given me a task to do. There's the commander's intent and I'm heading towards Jerusalem. Paul would say it this way, are you gonna share in the sufferings Of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I am selfish and I want the blessings of God. But if I'm honest, I don't want the sufferings of God. I want Him to put His blessings in my life, I want Him to give me peace and comfort and power and be able to navigate challenging things in my life. I want all of that, but I don't necessarily want the cost of following God. So I want, I want, God, I want you to fix my kids' gnarly teeth. I want you to bring me blessing, but you know what? I don't want to sacrifice to see your kingdom come. God, I want you to heal my body and help me with my arthritis, but you know what? I, I don't really want to give up my gluttony because my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I want you to bless my finances, help me get that job, help us pay down this debt, but you know what, God, I'm not going to honor you by tithing and supporting the ministry of the church. God, I want you to bring me the one true love, like my soulmate, that one, the one person that's out there for me, bring that into my life. I want that, but you know what? I don't want to follow your oppressive and rigid rules about sex between and a marriage covenant between one man and one woman? That's oppressive, that's old fashioned. Blessings, yeah man, count me in, but sufferings, no thanks, all pass. My flesh feels that all the time, but here's what I'm doing when I, when I lean into the flesh, what I'm saying is that ultimately it's a business relationship with God. And, and I, wanna, I wanna strike the terms that get me the most, that cost me the least. But here's what Jesus did. He says, I've come that when you talk to God, it's not a business relationship. Do you really want that anyway? Do you want a tit for tat with God? Do you want that? I don't think so. Instead, he says, when you come to God, you can now say, our father that's in heaven. You get to have a relationship. And actually, that makes sense to me. Because you know what? I, I want the blessings of the relationship with my spouse. Okay, I want that in my life. But, but if she's like, you know, I have to get blood work done and I hate getting blood work done and, and she's like, this is a thing that she's going to suffer through, it's actually a joy because I'm in a relationship with her that I would hold her hand at the doctor's office as she's going through something challenging, suffering alongside her. That actually makes sense in the context of relationship. And you know what? I hate landscaping, especially in July. Like, this is miserable, I hate landscaping, but she loves gardening. This is a desire of her heart. This is something she enjoys. So I I joyfully will go by her side. If that's suffering, that's fine. But I care about the things that she cares about. That's what relationship does. And Jesus would say, Hey, are you treating me like a business? Is this a a contract? Is that what this is? Or are you in relationship with me? Are you gonna suffer alongside with me? Now what's fascinating is the disciples go on and they think about that and they say, yeah, we can. We can share in that suffering with you. And Jesus replies, you will drink the cup and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Now here's what he was doing. He was predicting that all of these disciples would someday go to give their life for Jesus. Peter would be crucified upside down. Uh, 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 James would be stoned to death. Even doubting Thomas would be thrust through with spears. The only one who, who died a natural death was John, the Apostle John. He was banished to an island and lived out the rest of his life there. All of them, all the rest of them, they would all suffer somehow and die for Jesus Christ and he was predicting that. He says you will drink this but listen, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom it's been prepared for. In other words, God is the judge and it's his approval that we're working for. His approval is what you should be laboring for as well. And God will honor those people he wants to honor. You follow through by honoring and obeying him, and you leave that honored department up to him. Now, it's fascinating as an aside. I did a study years ago about how God honors people in Scripture because I had in my, thought, in my mind this thought like all God ever wants to do is just kind of, you know, like, well, it's good that you want to follow me, but, you know, here's some suffering in your life. Here's some oppression in your life. Here's some misery you're going to walk through, right? Does God favor people? How does he honor people? And I looked at the Old Testament, and you know what I saw? I saw that God would honor Abraham. God would honor Abraham with a house that was full of good things. He would honor him with goats and camels and cows and sheep and servants. And he was wealthy. And God would honor David and Solomon this way. He would honor people in the Old Testament and in the New New Testament. And I think this is actually really, really cool to think that God sees how we act and he's someday going to reward that. I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. Because what it means is this, it means that there's something called justice, and when someone mocks the living God and says, I don't care about anything that you believe in, God's going to see that and hold them to account, and when you choose to suffer for his name, Jesus said, hey, guess what? For those who give up family and life will not fail to receive 100 times that in this world and the world to come. God sees that and he honors that and he will give honor. Sometimes it will happen on earth, but it will happen in heaven. And Jesus says it's up to God to deal with who gets those seats of honor. Now this is fascinating because Jesus does not rebuke them for wanting greatness. He doesn't. He simply says your definition of greatness is so far off right now and you need to have an alignment here with what it actually means to follow after God. You really haven't been listening. I just got done telling you that I'm walking in to die and you're asking who gets to sit at the head of the table. Like Jesus would just be like, what are you doing? You're crazy, you're not getting it. I'm gonna be mocked and flogged because I'm denying myself and are you any greater than that? My path is one of suffering. Why would it be any different for you fascinating what the rest of the disciples do then verse 41 check this out this is nuts everybody hears that happen they hear this conversation and it said when they heard what James and John said to Jesus that they got indignant the rest of them are like maybe he is handing out those seats of honor man I got one cookie they're about to get two this isn't okay right that's what's happening if you have kids you know how that goes all right And this is what happens. Jesus calls them together and he says this. He says that you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, listen, you guys, you know how this works. You've seen this play out. The way of the world is to have power over other people. They have authority, and they leverage that power and influence and resources and authority to get more power, more influence, more resources, more authority. That's the way it works. It's all about jockeying for position. It's all about brown-nosing the right kind of person. It's all about asserting my rights and my opinions and my preferences and the game is to see how much of that you can get before the end and that determines how important of a person you are and Jesus would say, that's the world, the power over kind of world and that's not what I'm up to. Jesus would say, hey, you guys, you know how this works and they said, I do know how this works. That's why we want the number one and number two seats in your kingdom because I know how this works and Jesus, man, he just stops And he looks at them. He would look at me. And if you're a leader, he would look at you. And he said words that stop me in my tracks. And four little words that have the power to make you a leader worth following. He says, not so with you. Not so with you you you're not going to be a power over leader you are to be a power under leader that's how my administration is going to operate he says instead whoever wants to become great and it's fine to be great he doesn't have a problem with wanting to be great he'd say be great in my kingdom but you need to know what greatness actually means He says, anyone wants to become great among you must be your servant. Say the word servant. Servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Say slave. slave. Must be a slave of all. I want you to be a power under kind of leader. You know who you are. You've been given a commission. God empowers you. You are not being trampled on, but you say, I will deny self. And then Jesus, I almost picture him just kind of stopping and staring south off to Jerusalem. And then he says something that takes all their excuses away and it takes away my excuse as well. This is what he says. He says, for the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James, John, do you think you're better than me? Do you think you're greater than me? Because I didn't even come to be served. I came to serve other people. And this is the shocker to give his life as a ransom for many. The one person who deserved to be worshipped, the one person who actually should be deferred to is the person who got down on his hands and knees and wrapped a towel around his waist and took his disciples' feet and started cleaning the donkey crud off of their feet because they had been walking through it all day long. And if I have done that, how much more should you do that for one another. If I don't insist on my rights and my privileges, if I'm not jockeying for position, then neither should you. He would say, not so with you. You are not a power over people. You are a power under people. No servant is greater than their master. And what Jesus is doing is he's redefining his relationship and our relationship with power and what that actually looks like and what greatness actually looks like. Now, I wanted to find a way to maybe put some handles on this whole thing here. Now, the truth is, a lot of this shows up for us when we're in relationship with other people and when we have relationship, we have conflict with one another. And this is often how it it plays out. I I stole this illustration from my friend Jeff. It was just such a great illustration. I thought, you know, hammer time. Here we go. (laughs) Here's how it plays out I've got my opinions, and I've got my preferences, and I've got my desires. And you've got your preferences, and you've got your desires, and you've got your opinions. And the thing is, my opinion and your opinion and my desire and your desire and my truth and your truth, it's going to conflict with one another. We're just going to have tension with each other, it's just going to be bouncing off of one another. This is what happens in the world today, isn't it? I think this one thing. I have this political view on this one area, and I have this political view, and this this is about my rights. No, this is about my rights, and so we just end up picking up our hammers, and we swing them, and it's all conflict. I'm mad at her because she said this, and he's mad at me because we had this thing going on, and I can't believe they did that to me. Don't they know that this is what I deserve? And when they collide, there's this conflict. And in the middle of all of that, you know what? There's no change. There's no warmth. There's no healing. There's no forgiveness. Because we approach everything saying, how can I be the bigger hammer? And all it does is create noise. For some of you that know tools, you even hate the fact that I'm doing this because Eric's back there going, Oh, you're going to chip the hammer. And he's right. He's right. You're going to break the hammer. All it does is create damage and noise. And this, this sounds a lot like your relationship with your mom or your dad. Well, I can't believe she did that to me, and how dare she talk to me that way? You know, this sounds a lot like your relationship with your spouse. Doesn't he appreciate me? Doesn't he know these things that I do for him? Why doesn't she just respect me? I need to bear down on that. Here we go, I'm gonna give him a piece of my mind. It sounds like that relationship that you're distressed with, your roommate. And Jesus would say, look, if you're just asking me to come into your life and and bless you, you know, and, and I sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on that, you know what that looks like? It looks like a hammer with Bible verses. The Bible tells me you should do this, and God told me to do that, and I had a vision about this, and I had a vision. It's just, it's just a bigger hammer with Bible verses attached. Jesus would look at, at you, and he would say, Listen, I'm not trying to give you a more persuasive argument. I'm not trying to give you like a bigger social media platform to extend your influence. I'm not trying to help you create a bigger collective political group so that you can legislate your way to power and hammering over someone else. That's not what I'm here to do. He says instead, you're going to be something completely different. You're going to be something completely new. Instead of being like a hammer. You're going to be like water. Now, I can take this hammer and I can hit this water as hard as I want. Water doesn't care. Not one bit. I mean, I can can go down to the Potomac River and I can hit that river as hard as I want to. It doesn't care at all. Why? Because it's not a hammer. (laughs) It'll just absorb it. It'll just flow around it and I can strike as hard as I want to over and over again until eventually I lose strength and that hammer falls out of my hands, you know what's gonna happen? The river's just gonna absorb it because the river is not a hammer. Something different altogether. Something altogether new. Jesus didn't come to change us into a better hammer or to make us you know, more, more, more persuasive to like better engineer the hammer. He came to make us something altogether different and new. He came to, to make us water. And see, this is what the disciples were saying. Jesus, we want you to come and we want you to beat the Romans and the religious leaders and, and with you we're gonna become so powerful and strong and we're gonna become this great hammer. And Jesus would say, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm coming to die. I, I, I'm gonna be, they're, they're, they're gonna flog me and, and they're gonna try to hammer me. In fact, they're going to hammer me right into those boards, and they're going to mock me, and they're going to spit on me, but listen, my kingdom can't be stopped by hammers, because guess what? I'm just like a river, and we're going to keep flowing. Three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. They can't stop me with hammers. What this hammer does to me, what it does to the church, it's inconsequential. And listen, listen, I've been around for a long time around the church, and people are like, yeah, but what if, this, what if these people get in power? We'll lose our tax status. Oh no, the church of God will fall apart. It's not as if God doesn't own the cattle on a thousand hills. What if that happens? What if we're not allowed to meet anymore? Do you know how many churches are flourishing in China and in, and in Iran when they're underground and God is saying, I'm gonna bless that. My kingdom can't be stopped as long as you take on the posture of being a river and not a hammer. It can't be stopped. Listen, the, the hammer... When, when, we, when we come and we say, "I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to have power under," like the hammer doesn't even understand that. They have no concept. You're going to be a slave to all. The hammer can't even grasp that. I, I came not to be served, but to serve others. The, the hammer doesn't even know what you're talking about. Something completely different. How do you bring about healing in your marriage? It's not by being a better hammer. One of you has to choose. I'm gonna deny myself. How do you bring about peace in that relationship with your mom or your dad instead of saying, I can't believe that they did this? One of you is gonna to have to be the river. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, look, everything you've ever known is a hammer. And you may have been born this, but I'm not a hammer. And you might be thinking, man, we got to be harder and swing tougher. But listen, not so with you. Your identity is completely different. He'd say, I am something completely different. And the math is going to be completely different. And you, if you're going to approach this, you have to approach it like I approach it. You have to love like I love. And you'd say, I want... Peace and I want patience in my life and I want kindness and I want all the good things that's never gonna happen when you focus on being a better hammer and you want true love and a Christ-centered marriage that's never gonna happen when all you do is swing the hammer harder and you want inner happiness and you want joy that, that actually comes when you Deny yourself, and when you become a servant of all, and I want to be the best friend that I possibly can be, you know what, that's wonderful. You should try that. You should do that, but that comes when you deny yourself because you know what, that's the basis of what love is. You become something totally different. And Jesus would say, if you're gonna follow after me, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, You follow after me because, listen, fellas, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be mocked on. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to raise again in three days because guess what? I'm not a hammer. I'm a river. And I want you to be like me. You deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow after me. When the world wants you to power over, when your flesh wants you to power over, you power under. You rely on me. You say no to self. Let me pray. Let me pray. Jesus, would you just help us with this? This is is one of the hardest truths in Scripture. It just doesn't make sense to us, it's like counter to our instincts. God, would you show us in these still places? where we don't deny ourselves, where we fight for our rights, God, where we have been brandishing the bigger hammer and I'm gonna show him and she's gonna feel my wrath and don't they know I'm the dad, don't they know I'm the mom, they don't know how I sacrifice and it's just, it's just a clanging gong and a resounding symbol if there's not self-sacrificing love at the center of all of that and this is so hard. God, would you emblaze on us the image of you on the cross, how you laid your life down. God, would you make us into something different and use us in a different way, we would pray. In Jesus' name, amen.